So let, let, let me start with two very quick intros, okay? Intro number one is that um, this, I'm here like on, I guess you'd call it a speaking tour, and I, this was, my whole trip was set up like a few months ago. I ran most of the places I'm speaking, and we spoke about even topics and stuff like that. And then, on some Torah, the whole world turned upside down. And I wasn't sure, even if I should come, it wasn't easy to leave Eretz Yisrael now, etc., but... I felt it was important. The people here told me it's even more important, so I decided to come. I said, well, obviously, I have to, like, I have to change everything I'm going to talk about. I have to talk about things that are related to the current situation. So that's what I did, except in most cases, um, what I wound up changing was the title. And most of what I realized I was going to talk about is what I needed to talk about, just, you know, packaged a little differently. Now, in this particular case, this was only set up after this, so I didn't, I didn't actually have something set up for this, but... Um, I'll tell you why I chose the topic that I... Uh, those who are in Tanakh, what's Sefer or Sfarim? How does it work? What are you learning? It's not really a Sefer or Sfarim. It's mostly we're learning about Sfarno in class, and then in the other one we're doing the topics of heroes and villains. The heroes of the, heroes and villains. Well, we've been doing Bereshit. Bereshit, I see. Okay. All right, so we're going to look at uh, Shoft in Perik Dalad and Hay, um, which is the story of Dvorah and Barak and Sisra. Um, but there are two, uh, in the end, I chose this for two reasons, okay? So one is because in the end, I do think it's going to lead to a message that is very important right now. So that was one reason to choose it. Uh, but also because I think it illustrates something very important. Look, the, in general, the study of Tanakh was neglected for centuries. It's an interesting question why. Um, but the fact is, Tanakh, particularly in Nevi'im and Ketuvim, I mean, all you have to do is look at the number of commentaries that were written, let's say before the 19th century. The number of commentaries written on the Gemara, I never counted, but I imagine it's in the hundreds. The number of commentaries written on Chumash, I imagine is in the dozens. And on the, no? Yes? And in Nevi'im and Ketuvim, I'm not sure if we'd get to 10 before the 19th century. And if, if we get to 10, we certainly wouldn't get to 20. Okay? For whatever reason, people stopped studying Tanakh. And for most of history, it wasn't, wasn't really studied. Um, there's been a revolution in the study of Tanakh in the last generation or two. I come to you from ground zero of that revolution, from Alon Shvut. Um, I've had the priv- I, and that was my introduction to Tanakh also. I studied in Gush in 1986 for the first time. I studied with uh, Rabbi Menachem Liebtag, who I still consider my teacher and friend. And after that, I studied with his teachers, with Rav Yoel Binun, with Rav Meidan, the Rosh Hashiva now, who um, I'm also privileged to call my neighbors. Rav Meidan sits right behind me in shul. And if I'm mentioning him, by the way, I should say that his son was very, very badly wounded, very, very badly wounded, very seriously wounded in Gaza uh, last week. He needs a lot of tefillot. Uh, he's now expected to survive, which wasn't, wasn't, I think he lost two legs, though. So uh, anyway, um, they all need our tefillot. Anyway, so, um, and I've had the privilege to study with these people. And I think the question we have to ask is why, why the study of Tanakh specifically was reborn in this generation and in Israel? Why did it happen now? And I think there are two reasons for that. One reason which um, I think is clear to everybody, and the second one which is, is less clear, but I think it's, it's at least as true. The first reason is because we're back in Israel, we're able uh, to do what I love to do, which is to take the Tanakh and to go out, you know, you know, to study the Tanakh on location, which people want to do first and foremost because it's, it's just incredibly emotionally powerful, right? To stand on top of a mountain or something and to say, this happened right here, we're standing where this happened. But it, and I'm not taking anything away from that, that's, that's a very powerful experience and it's a very meaningful experience. It's much deeper than that, though. There are things that we can understand so much better by simply looking, traveling the land, understanding the topography, the roads, the hills, the valleys. There are things that you just understand much better. And even more so when we add the modern um, fields of research that we now have access to, archaeology and history, etc., that you know, bring, give us so much more tools to understand the Tanakh. That's one reason. Uh, and most of that was facilitated by our return to Eretz Yisrael. There's also a second reason, though which I think less people pay attention to. And that's that the messages of Tanakh are simply much more relevant now um, than they were for most of history. Much of Tanakh, and here I'm talking specifically about the Nevi'im. There are certain books of Tanakh that, um, 
you know, perhaps are, um, you know, speak a lot to the individual, like Tilim, for example. And in fact, Tilim was more popular. I don't know how many people studied it, but people at least recited it. And, and maybe people studied it too. Tilim, Mishle, Kohelet, right? But the Nevi'im, most of their messages were talking not to individuals or communities, but to a nation. They speak about politics. They speak about government. They speak about how to, how to get an entire nation to do the right thing and what happens when an entire nation does the wrong thing. And major processes like that and how to deal with enemies, and how to deal with foreign influences and diplomacy. Stuff that we don't necessarily consider relating to our Torah sources, but, and for much of history, that stuff was simply not relevant to us. And today it is again. So, therefore, with that background, and, and maybe, therefore, that's at least one reason why people stopped studying Tanakh in exile, and why Tanakh study has kind of been reborn, not just in Eretz Yisrael, but in Medinat Yisrael. Okay. Therefore, with that quick background, which took longer than it should have, um, I chose this topic because I think both of these, this is a good example of both of those things. Um, we're going to use it over here. I'll, stay, I'll hand out now two maps. We'll, uh, um, we'll see what they, um, we'll use them in, in a few minutes. But what I want to try to do is I want to try to, um, we're going to look at Shoftim Perek Dalad and Perek Hay. And um, we're going to try... Uh, first of all, to use some of what we now know, okay, I, the real way to do this would be to go up to the top of Har Tavor and, and, and to at least have part of this shear over there. And that's what I love to do when I can. We don't have that opportunity today, um, but you're all invited when you come to Eretz Yisrael. Um, but, okay, what we know from being there and with the maps that we have, we're going to try to see what, what our understanding of Eretz Yisrael can do to help us understand what, what the Navi is telling us on a much deeper level, I hope. And as I said, I think there's going to be a message here that's relevant, not only in our generation, but specifically to the crisis that we currently find ourselves in. Okay? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump right in. Um, we're not going to read every pasuk, but um, we're going to try to understand what's going on here. Okay. Um, how many people have studied Sefer Shoftim? How many people study Sefer Shoftim later than fourth grade? <laughs> okay. All right. Your teacher probably drew a circle on the board, right? When you did Perikvah, right? The cycle of Sefer Shoftim. Um, what's the cycle? What? For the people do Avodah Zarah or other sins, usually Avodah Zarah, which leads to an enemy, which leads to tshuva, which leads to a shofet who saves them, and then everything comes out good for 40 years or so, or at least that's what it says, and then the cycle repeats. Okay, so that is exactly what the Sefer says in Perak Bet. If you study the Sefer on a deeper level, you realize that it's not really a cycle, it's really a downward spiral, and the cycle starts to break down also. It doesn't repeat itself. That's the whole point. It's kind of like, um, like in poetry. I remember when I took English Lit in YU, right? The, the teacher explained to us, uh, there's like iambic pentameter or whatever it is. But the whole point of it is that the poem doesn't always follow it, right? It sets like a standard and then things start deviating from it. Otherwise, or like, or like the, the, the scale of music or something like that, right? The pattern isn't really a pattern. It's a pattern that breaks down as, as the Sefer goes on. But we're near the beginning of the Sefer still. Dvorah is like the third or fourth Shofet. Um, so um, so let's, let's, let's jump right in here. Vayosifu b'nei Yisrael asotara b'nei Adonai ve'ehud meit. Ehud being the, not the previous Shofet actually, but the most dominant one before. Vayim kareim Adonai b'yad yavin melech kenan asher malach b'chatsor. V'sar tzvaos sisra Okay, so take a look at the map the, on the page that says Milchemer Kishon. And you can see where Chatzor is, and you can see where Harosh Ragoyim is. There's actually several different opinions about Harosh Ragoyim. We don't know exactly where it is. This map follows one opinion. There's another opinion that puts it a little bit further north, but it's in the same general area. What's the first thing you notice when you see that we have a king? The enemy is called Yavin Melech Kenan Asher Malach Bechatzor, and his Sart Sava. His general lives in Harosh Ragoyim. What's, what, what's strange, yeah? They're not so close. They're nowhere near each other. Not, not only are they not so close, in today's terms, it would take about an hour and a half, maybe an hour and a quarter, to drive between the two places. If anybody learns Sefer Yoshua and remembers it, you may also have another question about Yavin Melech Kenan Hashem Alach Is there anyone here who learns Sefer Yoshua and remembers it and knows what I'm talking about? Okay, then let's take a quick look. 
take a look at Yoshua Perek. Yeshua Perek. Yud Aleph. Just read to yourself Psukim Yud, Yud Aleph, through, uh, um, through like uh, Yud Dalid, Tedvav. Now tell me what's the problem here. First of all, Yavin seems to be dead. More importantly, Chatzor doesn't exist. This is the book of Shoftim, right? Yoshua conquered, conquered Chatzor and destroyed it. It's the only city that was destroyed. That's what, the, that's what it says here. It's the only, Chatzor was Rosh Kol HaMamlachot uh, It was the most important Canaanite city in the north. And as a symbol, Yoshua burned it to the ground. Now look more carefully. You said you're learning Sefer Breshit. Did you start from the beginning of the Sefer? No, not from the beginning, like from Parsha Breshit? We're skipping around. Okay, so there's a Rashi on the Pasuk, the Ha'adam Yada et Chava Ishto. Rashi points out that there's two ways in Biblical Hebrew of saying the past. Right? Past tense, a simpler way of saying that Pasuk would be Vayeda Right? And Rashi tells us there that in Biblical Hebrew there's a difference between Vayeda and the Ha'adam Yada. Vayeda is what they call in English simple past. And um, the Ha'adam Yada means what we call in English past perfect. Right? It means you're describing, in English we would say, he, or Vayomer would be he said, Vahu Amar would be he had said, even previously. And with that, we now understand, if you look carefully, he's not called Yavin Melech Kena'an. I'm sorry, Melech Chatzor. What's he called? Yavin Melech Kena'an, Asher Malach Bechatzor. Okay? Who had ruled in Chatzor. It's a machoken of the Mepharshim. Uh, you also said, somebody over here said that Yavin seems to be dead. Um, some say maybe he, maybe he actually wasn't dead. Maybe the king himself survived. Or maybe the king was dead, and this is a, a later generation. Maybe one of his, maybe his son or grandson or great-grandson, which probably seems more likely based on the timing here. And he's not the king of Chatzor. He's Melech Kena'an, Asher Malach Bechatzor. In other words, what we're talking about here is Melech Chatzor is kind of like an honorary title, right? He's no longer the king of Chatzor. Chatzor doesn't exist. Chatzor has been conquered by B'nai Israel a generation or two ago. So Chatzor doesn't exist. Who is he the king of? He's the king of the remnants of the Canaanites. And he retains perhaps the honorary... Remember the Holy Roman Empire you learned in high school history? What did your teacher tell you? It wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't an empire, right? Okay, but why did they call it the Holy Roman Empire? They wanted to remember the great Roman Empire and kind of like, you know, it's like an honorary thing, right? So what we have here are the remnants of the Canaanites... Connects back to the message at the end of Sefer Yeshua in the beginning of Sefer Shoftim about how they, they didn't finish the job of conquering Canaan. And so he doesn't actually live in Chatzor. So where do you think he does live? Well, I know where his Sartzava is, and his Sartzava is in Charoshet Goyim. Okay? Now, if you look on this map, you see where it says Nachal Kishon. Nachal Kishon flows through a valley. You can see here on this topographical map. There's mountains here. Okay, this is the mountains of the Shomron. Okay, this is the mountains of the Shomron. And these up here are the mountains of the Galil. And in between the Shomron and the Galil, and this is Har Carmel over here, there's this valley called Amik Israel. Okay? And it seems that the remnants of the Canaanites had come, made their way over there, and they created like an enclave in that area. And if we look at the next Pasuk, we'll understand why specifically in that area. Okay, so by Yinkarem Hashem Biyad Yavim Melech Kenan Hashem Alach Bechatzor, Besides Tzvonus Yisrael, Bu Yoshev Bechor Shalagim, By Yitzaku Bnei Yisrael Al Adonai, Kitshame Od Rechev Barzelo, Vuhu Lachatzet Bnei Yisrael Bechozkai Esrim Shana. They cried out to Hashem because He has 900 Rechev Barzel, iron chariots. You understand what a chariot is? What would we call that in modern terms? A tank. This is exactly what it is. It's an armored vehicle, right? Pulled by horses. But it's it's made out of metal, so even if you shoot arrows at it, they just basically bounce right off. He has 900 tanks, in addition to foot soldiers. B'nai Israel didn't have that weapon. All they had was swords. 
Okay? And now we understand also why they gathered specifically in this area. Okay, that huge wide valley is very, very useful for tents. Okay, they can patrol. They can, they can, this is a major international roadway, and basically what the Canaanites have done is they've managed to create a force that basically now is rebelling against B'nai Israel. And not only have they rebelled, but they're actually oppressing, right? Because they control the roads, they've cut off the, the tribes of the south from the tribes in the north, and they're basically oppressing the people. And this is the, so B'nai Israel cry out to Hashem. Okay, now we have the background. And according to the cycle, we're supposed to get a show fate now, right? But we don't exactly get a shofet, we get a shofet, right? Udvora, Ishanavia, Eshet Lapidot. Interesting what that expression means, Eshet Lapidot. Let's assume it means that her husband's name was Lapidot, which is what many of the Farshim say. Might mean something else, but let's just work with that. Okay. So we have this woman. First of all, she, we're told that she's a Nevi'a which is not true of the other Shoftim, at least not all of them, maybe not any of them. Right? The other Shoftim who had, uh, right, for example, Gid'on. When Hashem came to Gid'on, he sent a Malach. He didn't have a direct communication. Dvorah is called a Neviah. So she's a Neviah and a Shofete. And there's something very unusual here in the sense that we have a woman as a Shofete. Now, that's unusual on two levels. Uh, first of all, the very notion... Um, that a woman can be a shofetet, um, halachically, became, this became the source of a whole thing in, in, in the Gemara Sanhedrin, I believe, Sanhedrin. Uh, simple understanding of the halacha is that a woman is sula le'idut even, she can't, in most cases, can't even give testimony in front of a court, and certainly can't be the judge. And Tosfot on the spot says, what do you mean? We have tzvorah, and that begins a, a whole topic of conversation in halacha, whatever it is. Okay, so that's, that's not for now, but we have something unusual here. But we're not, we're not only talking about a judge in a courtroom. Remember, the shoftim of Sefer Shoftim are not judges only in the classic sense of judges. One of the, what's the major message of Sefer Shoftim? There's a pasuk that appears three times at the end of the Sefer, one of them being the very last pasuk in the Sefer. Anyone know what it is? The message of Sefer Shoftim is that we had a period of time where there was no king. Right? Moshe Rabbeinu was a king. Yoshua was a king. Even if they didn't go by that term, that's, that's how they functioned. Um, and of course, Sefer Shmuel is going to talk about how we start to have real kings, Shaul and then David. And... But we have this period of time without a king, and the message of Sefer Shoftim is how terrible things are when you don't have a king. Right? Parenthetically, that's the, machlo, that's the message of Sefer Shoftim, how terrible things are when you don't have a king. The message of Sefer Malachim is how terrible things are when you do have a king and all the damage that kings do. That's one of the major themes, when I said before about politics. Major themes running through. And the question is, are we supposed to have a king? We're not supposed to have a king. It's a machloket. It sounds like even in the Tanakh itself, major machloket Rishonim, and lots to talk about. Not for now. Okay, but we're in Sefer Shoftim. Sefer Shoftim is trying to tell us how bad things are when you don't have a king. And the Shoftim, therefore, are the closest thing we have to a king. Right? Uh, they're, they're not kings in the sense that they're just kind of ad hoc. They kind of spring into action. There was one Shofet who had the opportunity to become a king. That's Gidon. Right? The people came to him and they said, we want you basically to be a king. And he said, I'm not going to do it. Whether that was the right decision or the wrong decision is part of that whole discussion. But the Shoftim are the closest thing we have to a king. And therefore, finding a woman in this position who is essentially acting sort of like a king, or the closest thing to it anyway, is even more unusual. Are there any other women in Tanakh who are queens? Not queens in the sense of Esther, who's the wife of the king, but queens in the sense of a female king. Are there any others? Atalia is the only one. Izebel, no. Izebel was the wife of the king. Right? Izebel had a lot of influence, but she wasn't the king. Atalia was, but that only proves the point. Atalia was an evil woman who became king by killing off all of her own grandchildren, except for the one that she missed. Right, Yoash? And, uh, right, the only other example, maybe, 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 is Malkatshva, who it's not 100% clear who she was, and she came, seemed somewhere, from somewhere in Arabia or Africa, and, okay, but she's not from us, right? So this is as Chazal would say, Omer Dorshen, right? What does it mean that suddenly we get a shofetet instead of a shofet, that we get a woman 
in a role that this is the only time we see a woman in a role like this, right? What does that mean? You tell me. Yeah? No one else was fit for the role. Okay, so what, what do you mean by that? No one else was fit for the role, meaning? Meaning it wasn't there just didn't There just didn't happen to be any men possible, and she was the best person for the job. Perhaps. Perhaps. And if you, we read it that way, therefore, the fact that she's a woman is kind of like a curiosity, you know, like an interesting tidbit, maybe creates halachic questions, but it's not really relevant to the story, if we read it that way, right? Perhaps. Or maybe it is relevant just to show you how bad things were, that there's not a single man, so we have to find a woman. That is one way to read it. I'm going to argue that I think that's incorrect. Because, as we're going to see, um, the text, including Zora herself, keeps drawing attention to the fact that she's a woman. The message here, you could spin this and say, oh, this is the message, right? Gender's not really that important. It doesn't matter. All that's important is the best person for the job. I don't think that's what the Navi's saying here. I think, as we're going to see, first of all, Devorah repeatedly draws attention to the fact that she's a woman. And not only that, she's not the only woman in the story. There's at least two other important women in the story. Well, and if we have time, we'll see that there's a couple other women who stick their head into it and yet their voice is heard also. Okay? So there's something going on here about about female leadership that I think is coming out of here. And let's try to see what it is. Okay. So, He yoshevet tachat tomer dvora ben haramah ben beitel bahar Ephraim vayalu eleb b'nei yisrael mishpat. She set herself up with like a courthouse under a palm tree. Ben beitel ben haramah bahar Ephraim. Take a look at the map and see where that is. This is going to be relevant to our story also. Okay, this is in the area of Shevet Binyamin. It's called Har Ephraim. If you flip the map for a second, just so you can see, Okay, Binyamin, Ephraim, Minashe. Okay? And then here, the same area, you see Har Tavor? Har Tavor is, that's, a, that's like a landmark that can help you link the two maps up together. Okay? So, and you can even see Raman and Beitel on this map also. Okay? So Raman and Beitel are in Shevet Binyamin in the area known as Har Ephraim. Because Binyamin and Ephraim is basically one geographic region. And Minashe also, part of Minashe. Okay. Now, we better speed up a little bit. She then sends a message. Just take a look at where Kedesh Naftali is. Okay? So we, we have our protagonists now. We have Harosh Ragoyim, which is where Sisra is based. We have his, he's working for Yavin Melech Kenan, who isn't in Chatzor, right? Who's probably somewhere near Harosh Ragoyim as well. We have, so that's the king and the general on one side, and the king and the general on the other side is Dvora, who's based in Ramah Beitel, and, um, and Barak in Kedesh Naftali, and she sends him with the following message. Leichu mashachta behar tavor, velakachta imcha aseret alafim ish, mibnei Naftali mibnei Zvulun. I want you to get 10,000 men from the tribes of Naftali and Zvulun. We'll talk about why those tribes in a few minutes. And I want you to take them up to the top of Har Tavor. Umashachti elecha el nachal kishon et sisra sartzva yavin vet rechbo vet hamonon et tatiu biadecha. And I'm going to bring sisra and all of his army to you, and you're going to defeat them. Now, the real way to do this would be to go to the top of Har Tavor. The real way to do it would be to hike to the top of Har Tavor, um, or at least to drive up and hike down, which is what I often do with groups. And, but unfortunately, we can't do that today. Um... I also, if I had more time and the equipment, I'd pull out Google Earth and I'd try to give you, and that's I'm not a bad substitute if you can't actually hike it, but uh, I didn't want to spend time on that either. So for now, trust me, and you can go check this out on Google Earth yourself if you'd like, it's really cool. Har Tavor is a very steep mountain, very steep, and it's at the edge of Amic Israel. Basically, it's surrounded on all sides by the valley. It's like a mountain by itself, and very, very steep, and it has kind of a flat top also. So it's a perfect place for her to bring, for, for Barak to bring his troops. Okay? He's going to bring them up to the top of the mountain. And what she says is, then Sisra is going to find out about this, and he's going to bring his army to Nachal Kishon, okay, which is in the valley. And basically, he's not going to try, Sisra is not going to try to climb the mountain. First of all, his chariots are useless. They can't get up the mountain. And even if he sends his men up on foot, first of all, he loses the advantage of his chariots. And second of all, they're going to have to climb up this really steep mountain where the enemy is like shooting arrows at them and throwing rocks at them. It's a, that's, that's a disaster. He's not going to do that. Which means that it's a perfect Shetach Kinus, we call it today. It's a perfect staging ground. Barak can assemble his army on the top. And Barak's going to get to decide when the battle starts. 
Right? Because Sisra is just going to wait for him. On the other hand, and again, you have to imagine yourself, I stand with groups on the top of Hartavor looking down and picture 900 chariots down there. At some point, you're going to have to go down. And when you go down, it's a suicide mission. 10,000 men with swords against 900 chariots and who knows how many tens of thousands of foot soldiers. It's crazy. But Devorah tells him, you're going to win the war. And remember, she has double authority here. She's the Shofetet. So this is coming essentially from the king, but she's also in the Viyah. Right? This is coming from the real king. She says, don't worry about it. You're going to win the war. Just do what I say and you're going to win the war. And what's his response? Barak. Vayomer leha Barak, pasuk chet, im telchi imi vahalachti, vim lo telchi imi lo What's her, what's her message to him? I'm sorry, what's his message to her? If you come with me, I'll go. And if you won't come with me, I won't go. What does he want her there for? What's she going to do? Here the fact that she's a woman is significant, right? What's she going to do on the battlefield with a sword? Even today, maybe women are in combat roles. Even today, not so much. But back then, what, 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 what's her role here exactly? She told him what to do. He's the general. He's going to do the military strategy. Uh, she's the shofetet. She's busy with people coming to her for judgment in Beitel or Ramah, wherever she is. Bain Beitel or Ramah. What, what does he need her for? Yeah. I think he could have the same idea of Moshe Arlene being there when they're fighting Amalek. Okay. He wants her there to represent the fact that Hashem is with them. Right? Yeah. And the role of the woman, meaning she's in the Yash, she can give them She can give advice if necessary, right? Okay. Yeah. An aspect of a, a Jewish king is supposed to be that they're leading the charge. So if she's playing this role of king, then she should also be willing to risk herself. Okay. And take a look at the geography here. And, and do you think that might have something to do with it also? Look at where Barak is. He's in Kedesh Naftali. He, She told him, take 10,000 men to the top of Hartavor. And I'm going to have Sisra, I mean God, is going to cause Sisra. He's going to cause him to do it because it's going to make sense. That's exactly what Sisra should do from a military perspective. And there's going to be a battle. And I told you that those men are going to be standing up there looking down and understanding that they're being sent on what appears to be a suicide mission. And Devorah sent him a message, Hashem is with you, go do it. And look where she is. And does this have anything to do with that, perhaps? Right? He's got to get, even if Barak himself the Mepharshim question whether it was Barak himself who wanted the encouragement or if he felt his men would need it. Right? It's one thing for you to be here with us, coming down the mountain with us into a death trap and telling us, I'm the Neviah, trust me. It's something else for you to be sitting under your palm tree. Understand, from Beit El to Har Tavor today is about a two-hour drive in a car. In those days, it's a two-days walk or something like that. I don't know exactly, something. So you're going to sit there under your palm tree in safety and tell us to risk our lives? I can't get 10,000 men to agree to do that. If you're here with us and you're next on the line too, then they'll come. I need you here. And I need you here because you're the Neviah. And what's her response? Okay, I'll come. Ephes just realized... Just realize that if I come, you will not get the credit, the glory, for the path that you're walking down. Because everyone's not going to say, if I sit at home, you're going to be the great hero who led his troops into victory. And Barak is going to get all the credit. But if I come, then in the end they're going to say it was a woman. Which woman is she talking about here? There's at least two options. She could be talking about herself. They're going to say he needed her here. She must be the one who won the way. He couldn't do anything without that lady with him. Another possibility is Yael, who's the one who's ultimately going to kill Sisra. We'll talk about her in a minute. Some of the more unfortunate understand it as far as some understand it as yeah. Some say, and to me this seems like it might be the, the real shot, it, she's talking about both. 
right? And again, we're starting to see what I was talking about here. It's not, by the way, interesting curiosity, she happens to be a woman, and who cares? It's the most important person for the job. The fact that she's a woman, she herself is drawing attention to that. She says, you sure you want me there? They're going to say that a woman won this battle. You're not going to get the glory. And what's Barak's... She's, she's playing on his male ego here, right? What's Barak's response? What does he respond? He doesn't respond at all. He seems to be completely fine with that. Right? No problem. I need you. I won't get the glory, I won't get the glory. We need to win the war. It'll be a woman, it'll be a woman. It's an interesting question. Um, why she egged him on like that and whether his response was appropriate or not. Uh, there's a number of Gemaras that discuss this and to me it's not 100% clear what Chazal were trying to say and I, I, I don't get the sense that they all agreed. There is at least one Gemara that seems to criticize Dvorah a little bit. Um, there's one Gemara that I saw that sounds like it's criticizing Barak. That what does he need her to come? He should, you know, whatever. And a different Gemara that sounds like it's praising Barak. I'm not sure though. They're all somewhat ambiguous. If we could have spent the time on that, I could have brought the sources, but I, I wanted to focus on something else. So I'm not sure. But, um, and, and, and I'm not sure what she was trying to do. Was she trying to talk him out of asking her to come? Or was she trying to get him to say that he doesn't mind? Like, was she hoping for this reaction? By the way, there's also a homodrashic idea that a number of sources in Chazal um, had Dvorat and Barak married to each other. Her husband's name was Lapidot. Lapid is a torch, and Barak is lightning, and it sort of seems similar, and they're Midrashim. That... So there's a, there's a lot going on here that we could talk about. Okay, but I, let, let's, let's, let's put that aside, and let's just say that, better or for worse, right or wrong, Barak seems totally okay with the fact that the credit is going to go to a woman. What he wants is to win the war, and he feels he needs her there. She comes. Okay? In the interest of time, I'm going to skip the rest of this pair because I want to look a little bit at the Shira. But let me just summarize, okay? Um, what I assume many people know. Uh, maybe one pasuk we should read. The actual order to start the battle comes from Torah, not from Barak. I mean, it comes from him to his men. But she's the one who decides. Or God decides, and she's the one who communicates it, right? Um, pasuk Yudalid, right? Yeah, let's, let's already read from Yugimel. He brings his whole army, 900 chariots. Go, lead your men into battle. God himself is going in front of you. So he takes his people down charging into what appears to be sudden death, certain death, whatever, and it says, Vayahom Adonai et Sistra, Betarechev et Kolamachanel lefichev lefnei Barak, Vayered Sistra mi'alam erkava vayanos peraglav. Something goes wrong from Sistra's perspective, and everything starts going wrong, his forces start to lose, and Sistra himself shows himself to be a coward, he deserts the battlefield, runs away, winds up in uh, the tent of Yael, Eshet Chever Hakeni, who understand is not from Bnei Israel. She's not part of us. She's from another nation, the Keni. They're descendants of Yitro. They were sort of neutral, it seems, or so he thought. They had good relations with Sisra. He thought that she was on their side. Apparently not. And she invites him into her tent. And uh, he asks for water. She gives him milk. He falls asleep. And she takes the tent peg and boom... And Barak comes chasing him, and she comes out of her tent and says, I think I know who you're looking for. And in fact, Biyad Hashem, Natan Hashem, Okay? What happened on the battlefield? Again, if I had more time, I, I'd go through and we, we, we kind of discern this. The text doesn't exactly say, but there's enough hints in the text that seem to tell us what was going on here. Um, it doesn't have to be a completely supernatural miracle. It seems that what happened was a sudden and perhaps unexpected rainstorm. There's a number of psukim, both in here a little bit, uh, and also in Perek Hay, and also Josephus, by the way, records in his Antiquities of the Jews, an, an old tradition that that's what happened. Um, it seems that was passed down. Uh, that there was a sudden rainstorm. 
Uh, probably I can tell you that what happened is that, uh, as I assume you know, in Eretz Yisrael, the climate is such it rains in the winter, it doesn't rain in the summer. In the late spring, uh, it doesn't rain very often, let's say April, May, even early June, it doesn't rain very often, but it can, and when it does, it's often a very sudden, I mean, today we have usually know about it because of meteorology, but like, you know, it can be somewhat unexpected and a huge downpour. Um, and when that happens, the valley becomes muddy and the chariots become useless. And it sounds like that's, that's what happened. Right? So Dvorah was in Aviyah. She told Barak, Hashem is with you. She said to him, Hashem, you say the fanecha. And literally, the skies opened up. And uh, that sounds like what happened. And Sisra ran away. Okay. That's Perek Dalit. Now, Perek is the Shira. Now, in the Shira, um, we have a parallel here to uh, Shira Tayam. Right? It's actually, this is actually the Haftarah that we read in Parsha Pishalach. There we had, after, after Paro, after his army was defeated by the water, right? And we have Az Yashir Moshe Uvnei Israel. Moshe sings and Bnei Israel respond. And here also, there's a song uh, of praise to Hashem. Who's leading the song and who's responding? Atashar Dvora Uvarak Ben Avinon. Right? Az Yashir Moshe Uvnei Israel. Again, Dvora is the leader, and Barak is responding, and they sing this song together. And many people think that Perak Dalad tells the story, and Perak is just a poetic song. That's a mistake. Uh, there's information in Perak as well. We don't have time, and it's, it's also very difficult. It's a very poetic language, and some of the things it's not 100% clear what they mean. We don't have time to go through all of it. I want to point to just a few a key aspects of the Shira uh, to try to understand what Dvorah's message is. Okay? So, um, let's first look at... Is there a marker? Yes, there is. Okay, I'll use the board in a minute. Um, first of all, I want to look at the following pasuk. And let's take a look at pasuk vav. Okay? Bimei shamgar ben anat bimei yael Chadlu arachot, yelchu arachot akalkalot. Here Dvorah is setting the background for what happened. In the days of Shamgar ben Anat already, who was the previous Shofet, and in the days of Yael, fascinating, when she talks about her own generation, she doesn't say, Bimei Shamgar or Bimei Dvorah, she says Bimei Yael, right? Um, but in the, already in those generations, um, the roads became empty. Why? Because the Canaanites were controlling the roads, and Bnei Yisrael couldn't really travel, and they were, they, they were oppressed. They, the roads became empty. Chadlu prazon b'Yisrael chaderu. And people stopped living in open villages because they, they were, it was too dangerous. They had to live behind fences. Sound familiar? They had to live behind fences. They moved into the walled cities. And that was the situation. Ad shakamti dvorah Shakamti Aim Bi Yisrael. Until I arose, Dvorah. And what does she call herself? Aim Bi Yisrael. Again, she's drawing attention specifically to her femininity here. And she's calling herself, and, and what aspect of being a woman? Specifically, she calls herself the mother of the people, right? The mother of Yisrael. And I think that there's a message here, which I'll, I'll try to pull out in a second, what the message is here. But as I said before, I don't think the fact that she's a woman here, is incidental. I think there's a message here. I once described, uh, I once said that these two prakim are the most feminist prakim in the whole Tanakh, and the response I got is, yeah, well, that's not saying much. <laughs> so that, that may be true. But I think there's a very powerful message here. Uh, I want to, in just a few minutes we have, I want to try to uncover what it is. Okay? So she refers to her, again, we already saw, she says to Barak, you sure? It's going to be a woman. He doesn't care. And we see that there's already two women that were involved in this victory. Both in ways that we wouldn't expect. Dvorah acting as a king, where we wouldn't expect, or Shofetet, where we wouldn't expect a woman. And then Yael essentially acting as a soldier in a way that we wouldn't expect, right? We have women stepping into these roles. I want to focus specifically at this point on a group of psukim, from, starting from Pasukyu Dalad. Devara goes and lists, and, and for this now, turn over the page to the back side, please. I want you to look at the, at the, at the Shvatim. And Devara specifically mentions a number of the Shvatim. And she talks about which Shvatim came to participate in the battle. Now, as far as we know, from Perak Dalit, there were only two Shvatim involved in the battle, which were Zvulun and Naftali. But as we'll see, it seems to be more complicated. 
Because it seems that more Shvatim were involved, more than what we were told in Perik Dalid. One of the things I love to do from the top of Hartavo is to try to figure out what exactly the battle plan was, and it seems it was more complex than what we were told. And there's one particular theory that's not my own that I like to share, but we'll leave that out for now. What I do want to show you is that there are some Shvatim that she praises for their bravery for going and joining the battle, and other Shvatim that she criticizes. Okay, so let's, let's just... Um, oh, it would be nice if this worked. Is there one? Okay. Thanks. We have some teachers here. So. What was that? Wait, teachers have markers on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the the check mark will be the the good guys, and the X mark will be the ones that we that she criticizes. Okay. And again, it's very very uh, poetic, but let's let's try to understand. Okay. So pick it up from Pasuk Yudal. Mini Ephraim, Shosham Ba'Amalek. Okay, so she praises Ephraim and Binyamin, who seems to have been involved in the battle also, even though we, don't, we didn't hear about them. Mini Machir. Anyone know who Machir is? It's a hard one. Good. Very good. You know that from Bamidbar? Very good. Machir is one of the families of Minashe. Now, Minashe was a very big shevet that already had two nachalot, right? Chatzim Minashe is Bechlal on the eastern side of the river. What's important to understand is that Machir is the part of Minashe that's in the northern Shomron, let's say the area north of Shechem, okay? So at least that part of Minashe uh, was involved. Yardu Mechokik, Uzvulun Moshe Shevet Sofer. Zvulun, we already knew about, okay? So she praises them. Visarai bi Yisachar im Dvora. Seems that Yisachar was also involved. Yisachar came Barak be'emek shulach beragla. They followed Barak with their legs into battle. Okay? So, so far we have five shvatim. We haven't even heard about Naphtali yet. We already knew about Naphtali. He's going to show up in a later pasuk, so I'll put him here too. We have six shvatim, it seems, that she praises for, for coming to the battle and for being willing to fight against Sisra. And now she gets to the Shvatim that she criticizes. Biflagot Reuven Gedolim Chikikelev. Reuven has a lot of deep thoughts. Lama Yashavta Bena Mishpataim Lishmoa Srikota Darim. Why were you sitting around listening to the sheep making their noises? Liflagot Reuven Gedolim Chikrelev. You had lots and lots of deep discussions. It sounds like what she's saying is that Reuven got a call to come and join the battle, and they said, we have to talk about this, we have to have a meeting, we have to have a conference, we have to discuss. And they, they had all these meetings and discussions while the sheep were busy doing their thing, and somehow they never managed to finish the discussions and actually show up, right? Buried it in committee. That's more or less what it is. That's what it sounds like. So unlike these Shvatimu King, she criticizes Reuven. Gilad... Who's Gilad? Gilad is not a Shevet, is it? Gilad is a geographic region. Anyone know where it is, Gilad? It's in Eivra Yardin, on the eastern side. It's the area where Gad lives. Okay, so she, she's referring to them by their, by their area, but she's talking about Shevet Gad. Okay, they live just north of Ruvain on the eastern side. Eivra Yardin. Um, okay. Gilad be'Eivra Yardin Shachain. He sat there on the other side of the river. So God didn't come either. Vidan, lama yagur aniot. Dan was so busy with their ships that they didn't, they didn't bother to come. Asher yashav lechof yamim. Asher was sitting by the, by the seashore. Val mifatzav yishkon. But Zvulun am cheref nafsho lamut. Zvulun was willing to expose himself to death. We, we already said, Zvulun and Naftali were the ones on top of the mountain who ran straight into the enemy forces. They risked their lives. So they praised them. V'Naftali, Okay. Let's look at this. I want to try to understand what happened, and I want to just try to understand what Zvora's message is. We heard that she told two Shvatim she told Barak to take two Shvatim up to the top of Har Tavor. It seems that the battle plan was more complicated and that other Shvatim were involved. And again, if I was up there on the mountain, I'd show you where maybe there was an ambush set up and whatever. It doesn't matter for now. 
But the point is, it wasn't only Zvulun and Naphtali that came to the battle. That's clear. Some of the tribes did, and some of the tribes didn't. Let's start with those who didn't. I'd like you to look at the map and, and ask if maybe based on the geography you can suggest why those Shvatim that didn't come, why didn't they come? By the way, what major Shevet is not mentioned here at all? Yehuda, not even mentioned. We'll get back to that in a minute. But from those who didn't come, can you suggest to me maybe why? Can I do who did come in order to explain why? They- okay, go ahead. Okay, because I think the top ones are the ones that are involved, like in Kali, Zuluni, South Armenasha, are like directly by Harzamor. Okay, let's put, a, let's put an asterisk near them. The ones that are very close to the battle site. Definitely Zvulun, Naphtali, and Yisachar. Maybe also Menasha. I'll put a circle around it, because Menasha, you can't see it on the map. They are nearby, but they're up on a mountain. And she is in a fry and Binyamin Okay, so we'll come back to that second point in a minute. But before we get to that second point, um, what about these guys? Reuben and Gad are on the other side of the Ardain. Mm-hmm. Dan is all the way by the water. And Asher... Should... Northwest, also by the water further up. Right, further And up. therefore what? So Asher really should have come, and Dan maybe... What? Well, she seems to feel they all should have come. Tell me why they should come, and tell me why they shouldn't come. If Reuven was having this big meeting, what were they saying? Tell me the two sides. Should we go or should we not go? Why should we? Why shouldn't we? Because we're not a part of it. It doesn't impact us. And that's the whole problem with Reuven and Gad being on the other side. Okay. And that's true also for Don and Asher. Yeah. Right? In other words, I feel bad. Why, why should they go? It's their people. It's your brothers, right? Yeah. I feel bad for them. Maybe I'll send a check. But... Should send my son into battle to risk his life for somebody else? Should they send their son into battle to risk his life for somebody else? Why? Okay, first of all, Reuven God specifically. But. And who sees that more than anyone else? A mother. What does a mother want more than anything? She wants her children to be together, right? She says, you're, They're your brothers. So she's emphasizing it with the motherly image. But this is also the major message of Sefer Shofti. A parallel, or, or, or a, a corollary, I should say, to not having a king, is the question, are we a nation? Are we a bunch of Shvatim? And this is where you see the difference. Look, you can see it today. Okay, there was a terrible, terrible, horrific attack on Simchat Torah. Who was affected by it? The kibbutzim of Otef Aza, Right? I live in Gush Etzion. I didn't even know what was going on. I heard, I, I had this uh, thing, I like to get, I wake up very early in the morning. One of, my, one of my most pleasurable times of the week is early, early Shabbos morning, about 5.30 in the morning. In the summertime, I take a cup of coffee and I go for a stroll in the streets of Alon Shlut. It's quiet. I woke up that morning on Sin Pastora. I heard what I thought was thunder. It was weird. They weren't predicting rain. I looked up in the sky, no clouds. I said, that's weird. I didn't really think about it. I was hearing bombs from far away. Until someone came into show, I had no idea. And there are people that live much further away. Right? Today there are soldiers in the Gaza Strip, in Gaza City, risking their lives. Do they all live in Otef Aza? A guy from Afula, does he say, what are you sending me for? I'm from Afula. What, am I, what has this got to do with me? Of course not. Why? Why is a guy from Afula willing to go and risk his life to save some kibbutznik who lives outside of Aza? Because we're a nation. It's not about, it's not about me. We're one people. That's what Zvorah was telling them. So, fine, these Shvati, maybe Menasha also, I understand why they came. These guys, unfortunately, they didn't. But yeah, what's your name? Ali Shefa. noticed that Ephraim and Binyamin did come, even though they're also far away. But what they had, maybe, was Dvorah. And if that's correct, what I'm saying is Dvorah's message was that if we're going to survive, if we're going to succeed, we have to remember that we're one people. We're not Shvatim. We're one am. You need your mother to remind you that you're all brothers. Unfortunately, her message didn't, wasn't heard by all the people, but maybe it seems that at least some of the people listened to her. Who are the ones that she had the most direct influence with? Her shevet, her neighbors in Ephraim and Menashe, the people who maybe she had more of an impact on because they knew her. Yehuda, by the way, she doesn't even bother. She doesn't even bother criticizing Yehuda. Not already, 
has to do with a something that has much earlier roots and much later roots, and the split between Yudah and Yisrael, and, uh, but it's telling that she doesn't even bother mentioning Yudah. Like, there was not even a Havamina, it sounds like, that Yudah would come, which is terrible, right? But at least her own people, Binyamin, Ephraim, and Menashe, it seems that they did listen to her, and they showed up, and maybe that was enough. At least for this, it was enough to win the war. So what I think is coming out of this is two things. Um, I gave a shorter version of this, uh, and a much more, it was for high school girls, so I, I you know, it wasn't as in-depth, but I, I gave a version of this year yesterday in a high school, and I made the mistake of putting on top of the page, uh, female wartime leadership, right? So then when I tried to get them to, so they all knew where I was going with it, so I changed that on this one to Milchema Takishan, right? But I think that is the message here. I think, uh, I don't think it's by accident that Dvora was a woman, and we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but who's the other woman in the story? Aim Sisra. Right, who's who's portrayed as the um, as the um, the alter ego? What are you the the foil. the foil? That sort of the literary word, right? The the opposite of Dvorah. She also has some Canaanite women who are uh, cheering her on, so to speak. We don't have time to get into her, but the point is the fact that um, I think there's a strong message here, and there are those. By the way, I didn't see this in any classical commentaries, but I've seen a lot of modern commentaries. That, what's your name, I'm sorry? Zahaba. Zahaba, that, that, that take this along the way. Oh, it shows you how terrible things were that we needed a woman as a leader. I don't know. I don't see that in the text, and I don't see that in the classical portion. I, I, I'm seeing something else. I, I, I'm seeing a message saying that what we needed at this point was, was the leadership of a woman, particularly a motherly woman, right? Because that's the message. Tavora's message is that we can only succeed if we are united, and if we all stand together, we'll defeat our enemies. And if we're divided, if we say, well, it's not my problem, then everything falls apart. Her message didn't get through to all the people. It did get through at least to some of the people. And at least at this point, it was enough to win the war. And if I have another couple of minutes, um, I probably don't even need to make the connection. But I'll do it anyway. Because, um, look, what happened on uh, Simchat Torah was... Um, mind-bogglingly devastating for all of us. And I think uh, we're all still processing. And it's going to take a long time to really understand the, the, the level of, I mean, let's put it on the table, absolute collapse of our intelligence and our military defenses. I remember, you know, on Simchat Torah, the you know, news started trickling in and rumors, you know, some people had their phones on, people in the army, whatever. My son told me he heard a rumor that Hamas terrorists invaded and conquered a kibbutz. I said, what are you talking about? That's not possible. And then I turned on my phone right after Yantiv, and at that point, things were still in the midst of it, they said estimates of 100 dead. I said, 100? That can't be. But quickly, Halavai was 100, and Halavai was a kibbutz, right? Now look, and, and, and it's so... okay. There'll be a commission of inquiry and what the army, who's responsible, whatever, that has to be, those questions have to be asked, they will be asked. That's not my issue right now. From a spiritual perspective, something like this is so unexplainable that's clear that it's right from Hashem. It's clear to me. This was direct from God. The same way our successes can't be explained when our failures can't be explained, it means it's direct from Hashem. And you have to ask yourself, what does Hashem want from us? Now, it's always dangerous to try to say, you know, this happened because of this sin or that sin. You always have to be very careful with that. Um, especially if what usually happens is, usually when people come along and say, you know, God did this because, it's usually other people's sins that they're identifying. It's because you did this wrong and you did that wrong. But at the very least, we are supposed to look at ourselves. And uh, with appropriate disclaimers that we don't really know, I'm not the only one who's saying this. Rarely has it been clearer to me what Hashem wants from us. Um, the terrible, terrible divisiveness, the terrible, and we, the writing was on the wall, and we all knew it. You know, and it was just getting worse and worse and worse, and of course, maybe hitting a climax on Yom Kippur in Tel Aviv. Um, and, um, and our enemies saw it too. They said it, they said it openly, in the press. The Jews are fighting with each other, this is our time to attack. They said it. Nasrallah said it, and, and the Sinuar said it, and the Iranians said it. If, however, that was the problem, 
Rav Maidan said this also on a podcast that the Gush put out shortly after the war started. If that was a problem, we've already done shuva In an instant. Literally in an instant. My son was in Yerushalayim on Simchat Torah. I have two sons uh, and a son-in-law that were all called up from Miluim. He was there on Simchat Torah. Someone said, you should turn your phone on. You know, things were happening. People were getting called up from Miluim. They, they got the message. They got in the car on, on Shabbat on, on Simchat Torah and they went down there. He told me they were driving 160 kilometers an hour. That's like 110, 120 miles an hour in the right lane. Because... <laughs> <laughs> the people just ran down there. The army had collapsed. They got themselves together very quickly, Baruch Hashem. The army had collapsed. People just grabbed guns. Whoever knew, they formed ad hoc military units and they went there. We now know, by the way, that Hamas, we have to give it to them. Unfortunately, this was meticulously planned military operation. But they had battle plans. They thought they were going to, they knew that eventually we would push them back. They thought they were going to be in Israel for a month. They had logistic preparations to stay in Israel for a month. And they thought they were going to get as far as Hebron. And the reason they were stopped is because instantly Am Yisrael sprung to action and people who days earlier had been protesting very viciously, almost physical violence against one or the other. There were even a few incidents of minor physical violence. Thank God it was only minor. Are now sitting shoulder to shoulder in tanks and on guard posts and on the home front and packing boxes and helping and volunteering and not just in Israel, across the world. Somebody called me up. I heard you're going to Israel. Can you take six duffel bags, please? <laughs> Someone's meeting me at JFK, JFK Airport with six duffel bags full of donated supplies to take back to Israel. I'm not even sure it's worth the baggage fees to take them. We could probably buy the stuff in it, but I also realize it may not matter. Maybe, 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 maybe it's necessary and there are things that they don't have in Israel, and maybe it's just that both the giver and the receiver have to get that message that we're all one people. Um, let me just close with one final thought. I know I'm a little over time, but the guy before me was 10 minutes over time. So if I'm four, <laughs> if I'm four minutes over, so you still owe me six. So um, uh, let me just say one, one last thing. Um, I, think, I think the message of Devorah here is very, very powerful. Uh, two, two last things. Number one, if I'm right that this is, that this is the message, and if it's Dafka, the feminine leadership, so as the only man in the room, I'll tell you this is your job, right? If that's, if that's in fact, so that's, it's the women's voice that we need here. Um, uh, in, in the real challenge is going to be not, not, not what's going on now. The real challenge is going to be when the war ends and we do win Bezrat Hashem, and we will, uh, what happens after that. And how do we hold on to this unity? And we've seen our enemies have shown, our enemies in, in, in the Gaza Strip and other parts of Eretz Israel and around the world have shown their true faces, and we've shown our true face now also. And the question is, how do we hold on to this? How do we make sure we don't go back to the way things were? Um... And I do know also that many people have said to me on this trip that it's, it's so hard to be here far away and everyone feels so connected to Eretz Israel. And it's very, it's very clear to me that, that those thoughts are genuine and, and, and it's, it's true. And, and um, that those feelings are, 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 are crucial and are very important. There is one aspect of this in which you guys are definitely on the front line. And that's the following. What I'm seeing around the United States and around the world actually is lots and lots of Jews who are not so affiliated who are suddenly waking up and realizing they're Jews. If for no other reason than they're feeling under attack, or, or maybe not. I have students, like this is Stern, right? But I have students from, on camp and, and relatives um, on campuses around America who send, sent me videos of pictures of these like pro-Israel demonstrations on campus. It looks pretty clear to me that at least a lot of the kids at those rallies would not have been in a pro-Israel rally a couple months ago, right? But something struck a chord inside them. And uh, this past Friday night, two separate people, I was ta- I've been talking about this a lot wherever I go, two separate people told me two separate stories about separate individuals that they happen to know, who in both cases they told me this is a person who's completely unaffiliated, who's never been to shul in their life, and has now gone to shul for two or three weeks in a row, simply because they feel the need to be with other Jews. Maybe even just because they're feeling threatened, or, or, or not, I don't know. But... If that's happening, this is the moment right now that we, we have to pull these people in. Right? We have to figure out how to get them involved. A couple of days ago, I was telling people, pick up the phones, think of who you can call, your relative, your coworker, your client, somebody, and, and say, get on that plane or bus and go to Washington. Okay, so it's too late for the rally in Washington now, but, but this is the time. Am Yisrael is waking up and realizing Devorah's message. They're realizing that we're one people and we have, we have to be together, and it's all of our responsibility to, to, to capitalize on that and to figure out how we're going to continue to work together and have the important arguments that we, that we dropped 
that are important, then we will have to pick them up at some point, and how we're going to have those arguments in a better way, um, so that we can fulfill our mission and um, and uh, win not just the war, but uh, the ultimate purpose of what we're here for. So, thank you very much.